Welcome to episode number 13 of the Zach Kuhn Show. Baker's Dozen, this is a big deal. Today's guest is Ralph Jagadine, professor of management at Berkeley College of Music. Ralph himself is also a manager of close to 30 years, and before that, he was promoting shows with some of the most legendary acts in all of music, I'll let him tell it. We talk about education, we talk about artists, we talk about music. This is a great episode, I gotta tell you. And I'll tell you one of the things that I've always loved about Ralph is his passion for the music, his passion for the artists, his passion for the business. Ralph is someone who truly believes that music can change the world, and I wish we had more people like that because I think it can too. Okay, I've talked long enough, let's dive in. If you're early, you're on time. If you're on time, you're late. You're late, who said that? Uh, it's, it's a quote that a lot of people say, in particular, Bill Belichick. I, I try to live my life by Bill. Yeah, and um, you know, yeah, being places on time, it's important. It's respect, but it's good business. How are you, Zach? I'm fantastic. How are you? Good. You dressed up for me. I like that. I dressed up. Well, you know, I was looking back on all of these podcast Zoom videos that I've done, and I realized that in every single one, I was wearing the same sweatshirt. So I thought, I got to mix it up. I'll put on the bomber jacket. Right. It's a good place to be. Right. How are you? And I, I think you dressed up too. Polo, are you going golfing after this? this is uh, sure. Yeah, sure. Do you, you golf, know, by the way? I, I golfed once a freshman year at the University of Notre Dame during gym class. And um, they told us how to swing. We hit a couple balls, and that was my whole career. You know, I think a big flaw in the Berkeley system is that they don't offer a course on golfing. Because the amount of the music industry that golfs. <laughs> you know something? That's, that, it should be like golfing and drinking and, uh, you know, whatever else we do. Yeah, it should be that. Like networking. There For should beginners. be like an after classes golf team at Berkeley. Yeah, I like that. The amount of executives that I've talked with who are like, oh, why don't we go golfing or whatever. It's like I've never hit a golf ball in my life. Yeah, I th I think someone if, if if we knew someone at Berkeley, we should maybe pass it on after classes, elective golf business schmooze course. I like it. I like it. Actually, that would be a great course. And then every single week, there's a different professional that goes with them, the course and just talks about the career. Yeah, like maybe you do wine tasting one week or like, you know, you know, it's, it's, yes. Ah, here. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Ralph. Thanks so much for being here. I'm so excited to dive in. I'm excited to dive in too. Let's get so, into it. Let's, di let's, let's dive in. So we just wrapped the spring semester. We're now moving into the summer semester. I yeah. remember talking to you at the beginning of this pandemic and we were talking about how we, you, know, you had no idea how teaching was gonna transfer over to Zoom. Now we've been doing it for a while. What have we learned about teaching in Zoom, is it harder than we thought? Is it easier than we thought? What What are some tips? That you know, it's it's, it's a mixed bag. One of the things I like to do, like when I started teaching at Berkeley, I I'm in my around my thirtieth year of managing, and then you add um, about fifteen years before that of booking bands, uh, promoting things, concerts, little concerts, big concerts. So I had a lot of experience in because I'm old, I know people. And I love to teach by bringing people into my classes. And a lot of times that means somebody's on tour and they're going to be in Boston or uh, they're here for a conference or do, doing something. And if I could grab them and come into my class, that would be amazing. Otherwise, I have to fly them or drive them or something into Boston, hotel, the whole thing. So this feeds really well into how I teach. Um, you know, we had uh, like... Danny Goldberg, who managed Nirvana and he worked with Led Zeppelin and people like that. He was the last person I brought into um, to the Berkeley campus. And then since then, I can get, I could call up people like my, our friend, our collective friend, Stu Burke, who's a road manager for Brandy Carlisle and John Legend, et cetera, et cetera. Stu's in, in, in Nashville, where you used to be before the pandemic, before you got into your little pine wood bunker there. And, exactly. Um, I hope to, I'll, I'll be back soon though. Yeah, that's what they all say. 
but you know, I, um, I, I love this. So I had Stu come in to talk about, I used to manage Stu's band in, in Boston. And um, it was called Avery and they were an amazing band. So Stu and I go way, way back and we're good friends. And I've been following his career and his career and who he is as, as a man is like, I want my students to hear that because he's a good guy. He's a sweet guy. He's an honest guy. He's hardworking. And his career path is amazing. So I had Stu in. And then the next class, um, Stu sent me all these, these contracts and um, expense sheets for, for some of his, his acts. And the acts names, it, it's always blocked out, but you get to see all the expenses. And, and all that totally. So I'm looking at these and I said, you know, I sent them to my, my students after Stu was uh, on Zoom with the class. And I said, take a look at these. And if you have any questions next week, we'll follow up with this. So I had questions. I didn't know what some of this stuff was. And it didn't seem to make sense. Like Madison Square Garden, a sold out show where the artist is losing money. And like, I had all these questions. So I said, Stu, we're going over these in class. Are you around for like 15 minutes or so to go through some questions? And he goes, sure, I would love to. Stu went to Berkeley and he's a buddy of mine. So he was there for about an hour and a half going through the contracts, talking about strategy, saying, yes, you sell out Madison Square Garden, you can lose money. You could use a lot of money. Um, and explain why people do that. So I love the access I have to some experts in the music business through Zoom. Um, so that's, that really feeds into my teaching style. I don't teach out of books, you know. I, I manage artists and run a little record label, and then I go to Berkeley and I teach what I do. And like Berkeley, totally. like out of my experience of knowledge, there's a, if it's a pie chart, I, I, I know a little sliver. And I'm an expert. I'm the world's expert at my career in what I know. And they pay me to teach out of my little slice. And I love it. I love it. So I am, uh, it's, it's hard to keep people's attention on a screen. It's hard when you have 20 people. And, um, you know, when you see somebody and I, I'm, I'm talking about something and then I end up in saying, and then they died on stage. <laughs> and then you see 20 people like muted and just like, just, ah, and they go say something like, is anybody alive? Is anybody awake? And that's, that's kind of hard. You know, you give, don't get automatic feedback. And when there's 20 people, when somebody goes like this, it's like, it, it takes over the whole screen. And I go, oh my God, how do you get your, how do you get the attention? It's, it's a little hard that, that way. But um, there's enough good stuff that, that keeps me into it. Now, it brings up a good point that sometimes, you know, you can have like, you know, nine fans who love you on stage as a performer. And then there's the one guy who's criticizing you and that voice gets amplified, even though you have nine people who love you. Similarly, when you're teaching, you know, you might have nine people engaged and you've got you know, one person who's yawning off in the corner. Yeah. Do you feel as a teacher, is it your responsibility to engage someone who's not engaged or is it engaged? If you have, you know, nine of those kids is it teaching to them, you and, know, you know what, that, what's your take on that? I, I'm going to answer that in a different way because um, when I was a high school kid, I used to, I used to play uh, in a, trio called Connie, Patty, and Ralph. And we played at church and little coffee houses that I would sponsor and promote and all that stuff. And um, so I know a little bit about being stage, but just a little. Um, but I've been around artists that are on stage all the time. When I started teaching, I go, my God, this is, this is, I had to get people's attention. I had to get my point across. I had to entertain. And, you know, I remember like my first class, I was I said, oh, I got this down. And I, I, I was talking about my career and my, how I got my start. And I lined up all my stories and I was prepared and I was given it all. And um, there was a student in the back of the room and he had this monster, monster can of Red Bull. And he had it in his hands and his head was back. His mouth was open and he was sound asleep. And I'm going like, I'm giving my all. I'm telling all the stories. You know, you heard about Prince and Springsteen and Mother Teresa and all this stuff. And it did nothing. 
So yes, I, I, I think my job as a teacher is a lot like an entertainer where I really want to get things across. And I want people, because I think some of the lessons and some of the stories I have can be of service, can entertain or uh, gain, you know, put stuff in their wisdom bank. And I learned a lot of this from uh, one of the artists I manage, Livingston Taylor. Liv is a, uh, teaches stage performance. He wrote a book on stage performance. And last semester, he had his good friend, Jimmy Buffett, in for like five classes. And it was amazing. I would sit there and Jimmy was talking about the importance of getting everybody's attention. And he says, I would focus on, it's mostly dudes. Like he says, like there's dudes that just don't like me and they don't care about me. So what I do is I find who they're with and I play to that woman and I make sure she's having the best time of her life. I might give her a pick. I'll do anything to entertain this woman. So then <laughs> he says, so the guy has to like me because his, he, has a, he has a happy wife or a girlfriend or a partner or something. And the happier she is, then he should be happy. And he was, he was saying like, I always go to that person and I try to win them over. And then you also learn you can't win everybody over. And you also learn that somebody is yawning because they've been up all night uh, for, for some reason. And I can't get into the moccasins of any of my students, just like an artist can't get into the moccasins of their fans. But I, I try my, my best at, uh, at doing my job. And it's, it's hard. It's a hard job. And I remember after that first class when the guy fell asleep with the Red Bull, I had a class right after that. And I wasn't used to teach a talking for an hour and 50 minutes. And I didn't know that you could ask questions or have students talk. It was just like, I thought I had to give a lecture. So I did. And um, after that amount of time, I was hoarse. I, like I, I was losing my voice. And um, I was worried because I had a 15 minute break and then I had to get to another class. And people were asking me questions as I was going to the other class and I go, I'm sorry, I can't, I have another show. And I go, oh my God, I just said show. And I make that mistake. I feel like what I do as a teacher is a lot like an entertainer. And sometimes it's a class, sometimes it's a show, sometimes it's a nightmare, but, um, but it's all good, you know. You were my student and- I um, was, and, and it was great. And, but it was, it was great because you and your classmates brought energy in and um and you're you're amazing it's it was uh it was an amazing your class was amazing class it's one of my favorites it uh, really was it actually really stands out in my mind when i look back at all my classes that music intermediaries class really does stand out as a couple of classes that i always think about and you also gave me one of my all-time favorite lines in that class which is when someone's name dropping, you just go, well, you know, Brad Pitt always tells me never to name drop. <laughs> That's funny, because when Cher said it a little bit differently to me. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, is that your line? Where, where, where'd you get I that I don't from? know. I steal everything. Really. I, I, everything I have is stolen. But, you know, when you, when you get on with life, you steal a lot of stuff, and you just kind of keep it going. You keep it into the ether, right? The good artists steal the great art, or the, the good artists, artists borrow the great artists steal. That, that's what it is. Something like that. But the, the idea is to, um, is to be of service. You know, I, I do have some experience and I do have some friends in the business and is all I want to do is share things. And um, that's a good way. You know, I'm, I'm, the last podcast you did was a young manager and you interviewed him and he was in his car. His, the cadence of his voice, his energy, his enthusiasm, that was me. That was me. I was, a, I was a young guy. My tail was wagging. I didn't know what the hell I was talking about, but I was an expert at everything. And I was so passionate about things. I still have some of that in me, but it's a little bit different. And now I want to, I want to manage and I want to make, be a great manager, but I also want to serve. And, and teaching students is, is a great way to do that. Absolutely. Okay, so let's go back. So your origin story of entering the music business is really one of my favorite origin stories because it's so pure. You saw an artist and you thought, 
I really like this artist. I think everyone else should like this artist. I want to help this artist be heard. That was sort of the fundamental thought process. You meet your first artist, Ellis Paul, at a church, and you go, I think I can help this guy. You're selling real estate at the time. How do you go from real estate to becoming an artist manager? Yeah, you know, it even goes back a little bit farther, if, if I may. Please. To uh, 1976, when I was living in my hometown of Allentown, Pennsylvania. And a little bit before that, there was a Deep Purple concert, and it was a big outdoor show, and there's a riot. You know, because there was riots all the time it seemed. So uh, there was a riot and the, the, the police and the mayor said there'll be no more concerts in Allentown. And then a couple of years later, they said, okay, we'll do concerts in Allentown, but they're going to be presented by the, uh, co-promoted by the Allentown Council of Youth. And that was a student government for the three high schools we had in Allentown. So uh, I, I was kind of hip to that. And I was like volunteering as like a uh, a little roadie at some of the shows, like Todd Rundgren, we would do things and, and Fog Hat. And then uh, when I was a junior in high school, I got elected to the Council of Youth and I was the vice chairman or president. And then senior year, I was the president's group. So I was in a senior in high school and what, how it was set up is we had meetings at City Hall and then real promoters from real big cities would say, we have Kiss and Golden Earring uh, or um, Thin Lizzy and Rush, you know, and they would give us some dates and, and they would say, are you interested? And, you know, 15 high school kids go, yeah. So whatever they had that we had a room available, and there was two rooms in Allentown, we would say yes to and we had great shows. So the real promoter would do the contract and the tickets and all the real world stuff and take the financial risk. And we would get a benefit of the, uh, some of the profits and proceeds. And we would be like hospitality, kind of light security. We would like be backstage security, uh, promotion, street team, things like that. But that was when I got like, I was, I was singing at church and I was promoting little coffee houses in my church and doing folk music stuff because I was under 21 and I could get into folk music places. And then all of a sudden I'm starting to meet like Kiss and Rush and Styx and Dolly Parton and Linda Ronstadt and all that stuff. And back then, um, 1976, it was Dave Mason, Bachman Turner Overdrive, and Livingston Taylor opening up. And I was a massive Livingston Taylor fan. So I got imprinted really early with the majesty, the wonder, the spectacle, the dangerousness of these rock people coming to my little hometown with their shiny buses, changing the DNA of everybody involved. And then they would go off to another city. And I'd go, that's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. So... I went to college and the senior year, I was the concert, uh, the concert director for University of Notre Dame. So that was a little bit bigger. That was like promoting Springsteen and Van Halen and the Eagles and Yes and people like that. And then I thought like, and the important part of the story is that I thought I would just take over the music business. Um, Cause I, my last show at University of Notre Dame was Springsteen. I went to Europe with the band. I spent a week with the band, the same hotel that Prince was at. And I was like, I was like a kid in a candy store hanging around Springsteen and getting in a little van and going to Wembley with the band while Prince was at the other end of the hotel. And it was mind blowing. Like so, almost famous. Yeah, it was, it was like, yeah, exactly. And I wanted either the hotel to collapse around me in between Springsteen and Prince in the lobby. And that, that would be how I ended. I thought that would be okay, but I, it didn't happen. So I did the next best thing. I moved to New York city to take over the music business. And this is, this is pre-internet where there was, there, there wasn't, um, there wasn't directories of who does what and how to contact people. So I was, I was like cold calling everybody and, and you know, it just didn't work out that way. I ended up getting a job selling Wrangler jeans and that was fine because they paid me a salary. I worked in the empire state building and um, you know, and, and the whole business was all, all uh, it seemed like it was all Jewish people in my office 
And being from Catholic schools all my life, I loved, I loved the Jews. They were like the Italians, right? And I'm Italian. So they say, Ralph, you got to go in and tell them you're the only goyim in the shmata business. And I say, what does that mean? They go, forget about it. Memorize that and go in there and smile. So, and say your name is Wrangler Ralph. So like we, it was wonderful. And I got to do a little bit of growing up. And then... Okay, wait, wait. So, so hold on. So, so I just want to go back for a second. So you're promoting shows with literally, I mean, some of the most iconic acts of all time. Did they feel iconic at the time? Did they now like Springsteen, Van Halen, there is such a lore over those acts. Did they have those at the time? Did you, yeah, did you think? I was, I was, I was out of my mind happy. You know, I was able to have dinner with Rush and, um, and it was like Rush and Sticks and Mata Hoople and, um, you know, Kiss and all these, all these bands in the 70s and, and early 80s that, uh, they, yeah, I loved it. And it was like, to this day, I, I still feel amazed when I see somebody that's an amazing artist. And when that stops, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start a hedge fund or be an orthodontist or do something. But I still love it. I, you know, I'm, I'm 60 years old. I still love music and I love musicians. And having uh, that in my life has been such a blessing, Re really amazing. So I, I, I haven't lost that. And I think that's really important. This business, any business, this life, any life can beat the heck out of you. So music is a real uh, special part of my life. So yes, I was blown away back then. And I, I knew, uh, you know, Prince was just starting out, but I saw him in a club and I go, this is, this is going to be one of the biggest artists on the planet. And um, yeah, I, I was pretty conscious of the fact that this is, this is really special to be around, breathing the same air as these people. Like, I, I really dug that. Totally. Okay, wait. And you kind of glossed over how you ended up in, in uh, the same hotel as Prince and Springsteen. How did you go to Europe with the band? Well, my, my last show at Notre Dame was Bruce Springsteen. And I was a massive Springsteen fan. And I got to spend the, you know, the whole day with him from early afternoon to late at night. And, um, you know, his booking agent, Barry Bell, was there. And, um, you know, I, I was, you know, I want to get a job in the music business. So I was asking questions and I was like, you know, Springsteen was, you know, he was my man. So I made sure that Barry Bell and Bruce Springsteen got Notre Dame football jerseys. So we got varsity jerseys that said Springsteen and Bell at the bottom. That helps. And, um, and it, it just was amazing. And I was going to London at the graduation, and so was the tour. So ends up, I was on the flight with Barry Bell. He invited me to hang out with the band to see the shows. And, um, and it just, you know right place at the right time, knowing people, being lucky. Um, but it, 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 it gave me, when I, when I, when I go to a Springsteen show, let's say my intention is that show is going to change my life. Like it's, I'm not there for entertainment. I want it to change my life. And, um, and, and my experience with some of these artists, especially Springsteen, it was a profound, it was really, really profound. Um, what it's what it's done to me because I understand I always knew the power of music but when you're on the side of the stage a Bruce Springsteen show and he's next to you and he has to walk up three steps to get on stage and all that energy is coming down and people are saying Bruce and you know the guy next to you is for me one of the most powerful popular amazing people on the planet and I was just like, this is, this is power. This is real power. So to the, this day, I'm in the music business because for me, it's the most powerful force on the planet. I, I don't know of anything more powerful than music. And it's a responsibility as a manager and a, and a, a college teacher that that has to come out. It's, it's not just a job. It's not just a career. It's not just a way to make yourself famous or get money it is uh you're dealing with real power and um so i've been imprinted early about that you know now it, it begs the question did you get the chance to see him on broadway or, or did you see the netflix special yeah i saw the netflix special the broadway thing 
you know, um, it was expensive. Um, I, I, Livingston saw it. Livingston is friends with John Landau, who produced Livingston's first yep. couple of albums and is Bruce's manager. So uh, I got a whole, you know, play-by-play of the show. And they were able to go backstage and their friends and all the people are friends. But Livingston's wife is in Gail, Gail Arnold. She's amazing. And she's a massive Springsteen fan. So Livingston will tell me, you know, what went right, what went wrong. And then Gail would say, oh, my God, it was amazing. So, so I, uh, I go to Gail for reviews. But I, I, listen, I, uh, Springsteen doesn't have to, I don't have to do anything else with Springsteen in my life, in my engagement with his work and his career for him to be like, uh, really, really important to, in, in my life. Absolutely. Okay. So you you get this job at Wrangler, which is, you know, not how most music, in, you know, that's not the classic music industry jumpstart Ooh. story. Ooh. What happens to Wrangler? How, like, how does that yeah. project the rest of your right. career? So I, I was the only goyim in the schmata business. I did that for a while. They moved me up to Boston. Um, and, you know, I, 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 it was tough. It was, um, I had a territory. They gave me a van. So I would have this whole, the whole van would be full of uh, uh, racks of clothes, sample racks. And I would go to an Army Navy store in Chelsea, Massachusetts, and I uh, would make an appointment, park the van, take the racks into the store, show them the stuff, try to get some orders. And, um, and I liked it, um, uh, you know, but I didn't love it. I lived for music. I lived for going out and uh, buying music and seeing music. And, and this was a job, but I did learn. I did learn a lot of things from it. Um, and then, I was playing basketball and I hurt my knee. So I had some recovery time. And I said, this is a good time to get into something else. And at that time, there was, Boston was booming. The real estate market was really booming. And it wasn't really on my radar business and all that stuff. I just, you know, I, I, I was kind of um, happy-go-lucky a good deal of my life. And I said, I know, I'll get into commercial real estate. So... I went out and um, I sent my application to all these commercial real estate companies, not really understanding it, but knowing enough about real estate that this might be good. And I finally got a job at a little entrepreneurial company and um, who, uh, so I did that for 12 years. I was uh, a broker of uh, office space, retail space, warehouse space. I was managing some properties and on my own, I was buying properties, rehabilitating them and selling them. So I was, uh, that was the time I learned about negotiation. I learned about money. Previous to that, I liked everybody and trusted everybody. (laughs) That went out the window. Uh, So I learned, I grew up. So in my early thirties, I got my client, Mike Dries, who he was an MIT dropout who started a chain called Newberry Comics. It's a retail, it was a music store back then. It's and really because I think a lot of people who aren't in Boston might not, might not know, but it's really like, it's a hangout spot. It's more than a store. It's yeah. what I remember being a freshman at Berkeley. I didn't know anyone couldn't get into bars like we people would hang out at Newberry comics yeah and i i feel sorry for the generation that doesn't have a place to go where the music's there and the tribes there and people are discussing things and um you know i when i went to Newberry comics on Newberry street the first place and um amy mann uh who's an artist was there she was in a band called the young snakes white snakes something snakes maybe the young snakes and she was there blonde hair and a little, a little ponytail thing. And she was gorgeous. And I would buy as much stuff as I could. So she would engage with me. You know, I, I think that's what I did, but anyway, it was, it was a great place. So they have 29 stores now, but the guy that started Mike Dries was my real estate client. So I would, I would show him properties and I found their warehouse, um, a couple of the stores, um, but I was a customer and I was a music fan and we became friends. So we would go out and drink beer and see bands all the time. And he became a really good friend. So when I met Ellis Paul and saw this guy in a church coffee house basement and think 
this is like, I came out of there and saying that I've seen the future of folk music and it's Ellis Paul. And like, I've, you know, he had long hair. He got off stage. He was going through the audience. I loved his music. And just what you said, Zach, I, I wanted to help him. And, uh, you know, and I, that's all. I didn't contact him. I didn't do it. I just wanted to help him. I finally got his phone number and I was going to call him up, but I actually woke up at 4.30 in the morning, one morning, and I had this dream about starting a record label. So, you know, it's like, you know, like you start, you have a dream and you write it down. This is the first time in my life I wrote down the dream. And the dream was starting a record label. And it was called Knock on Woods Records. And it would be great songwriters and this and that. And I had no, no idea at all what, what this is about. But I do know that I put that little pad next to my bed and on a, a lot of big pile of books. And that day I was showing Mike Dries from Newberry Comics some retail spaces. And I said, you know, Mike, I had a dream about starting a label last night. And I want to do it with this guy, Ellis Paul. And Mike says, uh, Ellis Paul, okay, play me the music. So I got the cassette. Remember cassettes? Maybe not. I put the cassette in my car. I played some music. And, Ellis, uh, and, and Mike said, yeah, he's good. I'll be, your, I'll be your partner. So all of a sudden. Just like that. It's so easy. The music business is so easy, Zach. So just like that, Mike Trees, who has money, contacts, connections, record stores, and he's a buddy. And he buys my beer all the time. He, uh, he wanted to be my partner, and I wanted to be his partner. So we started a record label. And that got me out of real estate after 12 years. And understanding that you can't just start a record label, you can't make money, there's no, but you can manage. And Ellis needed a manager. Um, and I didn't know what a manager did. So I had to do a couple things. And this is, again, this is pre-internet. I, I went to a Tower Records and I bought the Passman book. And I tried to read about the music business. And I, I, it was so boring and I didn't understand it. So I went to the Boston Public Library. I looked up record label or management and they had nothing. So I had to, um, you know, and, and, and Mike Dries came up with a contract. He wrote it down. He says, 50-50, Ellis puts in 12,000. We put in 12,000. We, uh, we share everything 50%. Um, you know, Ellis owns it and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and, and Mike was smart, so he, he did this contract. I was working my way out of commercial real estate because I Are you was, anxious to get out? Were you like, get me out of here? Or were yeah, you yeah, actually yeah. enjoying yeah. it? Or? I, I, yeah, I was enjoying it. And I learned a lot, but music was my passion. So, and around this time, I won a church raffle for $1,000 too. Like, I, I, bought a, I bought a raffle ticket from- Which $1,000 in those days was oh like a million dollars. It was like, I bought a million dollar raffle ticket from a, a, like a charity at a church. And, um, and I, I got that check from St. Basil's in Methuen, Massachusetts, Ralph Jacketing, $1,000. And I went to the Bank of Boston at the time, which is now Bank of America. I deposited it and I called it Black Wolf Records. And that was a name that my, my partners were coming up with. And, you know, you can't check if there's any Black Wolf records. So I just started, a, put $1,000 in. So like, uh, Zach, God was my first investor. So how, how could you screw up when your first investor is at church, right? Totally. Right? It's so easy. Okay, wait. So, so I, love, I love the story of how you, you go to him, you go to Mike with the record, and, and what does Mike say? What, I mean, you're so excited because you bring him the $500 and you say that you have the record and you're ready to go promote. And what is, he says, who cares, right? What's the, what's yeah, the story yeah. there? We were, we were ready to release the record. And a guy named Bill Morsey produced it. And we had some great artists on it. Patty Griffin was on it. Uh, Martin Sexton was on it. Jonathan Brooke was on it. Like really great artists. And I was really excited, not knowing anything about the business, really. And um, 
And then I was going to, and cell phones just came out. I was going to a meeting at Newberry Comics and, and to, to like, okay, we're, we're, we're ready to release this thing. And Ellis calls me from Los Angeles and he said, guess what? I won the acoustic underground competition. And it was a big national thing back then. It was at the Troubadour and he won the grand prize of $500. And Ellis was gonna donate that money to the cause so we could market and promote it a little bit more money. And I was so excited. So I sat down with Mike and I said, hey, guess what? Ellis won the acoustic underground competition last night. And I was waiting for the trumpets and I was waiting for, oh my God, Ralph, you're the best. He's the best. Let's go. And he says, okay. And he, I kept on saying how important this competition is. And he goes, yeah, okay. And then I would say, then the $500 he's donating to us so we could, you know, for the marketing fund. And then Mark, Mike looked up at me and he says, Ralph, no one cares about Ellis Paul. And, um, and I was in my low 30s. I just got married and my son was on the way, who's now 24 years old. And um, when Mike said that, I, it, it was like I got hit in the gut. And um, all of a sudden I felt, really sick and I felt that my partner uh, I'm making all these big radical moves with my life and my career and I got married during this time and I'm having a kid during this time and my partner says the person I got into the music business for Ellis Paul that nobody cares I did not want to hear that so nonetheless that meeting didn't last too long and I had to go home um, and, you know, I got in my car and it was in a garage underneath the Newberry Comics warehouse. And um, I don't know if you know this, Zach, but underground garages have pillars. So and sometimes they jump out at you. They, yeah, one jumped out and I was out of my mind and I hit a pillar and then I just went back in the parking spot and I, I go like, I need to deal with this. I need to, you know, and because I was not, I, I felt I was going to physically get sick. Wow. Like, what am I doing with my life type thing, you know? And as I said, like, I, I kind of go with my, my heart. Um, and then I'm thinking, but I have a wife and I have a kid on the way and maybe this isn't right. And it, it was sobering, it was terrible. And then um, I, I didn't want to leave that parking space without figuring out what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And what I came up with is like, fuck it. I'm going to make, I'm going to make people care about Ellis Paul. I'm going to, I'm going to partner with this guy and we're going to make sure that people care about his music. And that's how I learned first what a manager does, whatever it takes to make people care about somebody's art. There's somebody's music um, because we don't need any more songs. We don't need another guy with a guitar we don't need any more bands. We don't need, we're, we're all full. So if we're all full and we don't need any more songs or artists, what do you have to do? What is, what is the job? And the job is to make someone care about you and your art. And that's a tough job. But that's how I found out what a, what a manager does, you know, back then because of, I cracked my car into a pole. Hey everyone, thanks for listening and hope you're enjoying the show. Some of you may know that I run an industry newsletter called The Nashville Briefing. It really takes you to the front row of everything happening in our industry. And if you want to learn more about it, you can go to nashvillebriefing.com to subscribe. Also, if you're enjoying this show and specifically this episode, please feel free to give us a five-star review on your podcast listening platform. Thanks so much. Now back to the show. Great. It's a great story. So, okay. So, so you, you know, you're starting to learn what a manager does and then you think to yourself, you know, I need to, I really need to talk with someone who has done this before. How, how can I find someone who is, yeah. who is, who is, you know, who knows what they're doing, who has done this for a long time. You start trying to find a mentor. Talk about that process. Who do you reach out to? Yeah. You know, Zach, it was, it was tough because, um, 
I always wanted to call myself a manager. Like I was so proud to call myself a manager, but I, uh, beside making people care about my artist and putting on a record and getting some money together, I, I didn't know really because I've never, I've never met a manager. You know, I've hung around some big people and some big artists, but I didn't, I never met a manager. So, you know, back then I was, I was fearless and I was foolish. And like, if I had to do something, I would, I would do it. Kind of like your last podcast, that guy in the car, like his energy was like, that's what I was thinking. I was like, I got to make something happen. So the biggest band in town. I love that you listen to that guy. I feel like Alex Goodman and you would be great friends. If he's ever in Boston, I'll, I'll have to connect you guys. Oh man, I, I, he's way too much energy. It's amazing. So, so I, I, I like, what's the biggest band that I know is it's, it's Aerosmith and I know they're from Boston and I know their managers in Boston because he's always in the news. His name is Tim Collins. He's always, you know, I've, I've been following like Tim and Aerosmith since I was a little kid. So I called up his office and I said, hi, I'm Ralph Jackety. I'm a new manager. I'd like to meet with Tim. They go, uh, I would like to talk to Tim. And they said, uh, does Tim know you're calling? And I said, nope. And they go, one minute, please. And then, you know, two minutes later, the woman gets on the phone and says, um, Tim can meet you with you. Um, and this was like maybe November. And, and she goes, are you available uh, February 17th at 10.30 in the morning? And I go, yeah, 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 I'm available. So I had all these uh, like weeks and months to like to worry about meeting Tim Collins, the manager of Aerosmith. And, um, you know, he was going out on tour doing something. So uh, I, I had a meeting with a real manager. And my, my, what I did is I dressed in my shirt and my pants and I shined my shoes. I had a business card and I had Ellis Paul's CD with me. And it's all I wanted to do is shake his hand. And I wanted to breathe the same air as the manager from Aerosmith. I just wanted to meet him on manager. So I did. And it was fine. And he was, he's a sweet guy, really sweet, busy, beautiful office, sweet. I did everything. And I left there and I go, that's it. I just wanted to touch his garment. And I did. I met the manager of Aerosmith. And as I say, I just wanted that to change my life. I, I wanted that, like that energy from Tim to kind of like, nah, that's what, I, that's how I get there. And um, that was enough until about a week later, I got a call from his secretary and she goes, please hold for Tim Collins. And um, I held for Tim Collins and Tim says, hey Ralph, uh, there's a club called the Iron Horse in Northampton. Do you know anything about it? And I said, yeah, Tim, I know everything about it. And this is the club that Ellis Paul played at and, and other artists I was working with and I knew and I went to the club. So uh, I told Tim everything about the club everything. I downloaded all my information and he goes, thank you very much. And hung up the phone. And I was sitting in my office in Porter square Cambridge. And I go, Oh my God, I just helped the manager of Aerosmith. And I go, that's, that's amazing. So I got on the phone and I called him and, um, please hold for Tim Collins. So I, Tim came and he says, hello. And I go, Hey Tim, it's Ralph. And he goes, yep. And I go, Hey Tim, um, I, I, I just helped you. And he goes, yep. And he says, and I'm sure you could help me. And he goes, yep. And then like, it's, it's like almost like a bad date. And then I, I said, hey, Tim, what if we get a whole bunch of managers together and we help each other out? And he goes, I'd love to. Let's have lunch tomorrow. And that was 25 year, 26, 27 years ago. And Tim and I started something called the Boston Managers Group. And he had access to... Harry Connick Jr.'s manager, Allman Brothers manager, and uh, the Guster, and all these, all these big managers in town. Tim says, call this person, that person, that person. And I would say, hi, I'm Ralph Jackety, and nobody knew me. Uh, I'm partnering with Tim Collins, and everybody knew Tim. And we're starting a Boston managers group. So we started this group a long time ago. Subsequently, Tim has left the business, and he's living out west. And I kind of think he just counts his Aerosmith money all day long. I, I, would, I would just count it and recount it and stack it up. I, I, I don't know what you do when you manage Aerosmith, but, but he is one of the most loving, wise, beautiful mentors and friends I've ever had. 
So we started this and because of that, all of a sudden, I had a board of directors. I had mentors. I had, uh, I had a band of advisors. And this has been going on for 26, 27 years. And now my email list is about 150 people. So there's a, there's a lot, of, lot of players. I mean, it's not just managers, it's booking agents and some musicians and publishers and things like that. But it's, it's really an amazing thing and it really served me well. Um, again, I kind of happened into it because, you know, Mike Trees was my partner in the label and everybody knew him and he had experience. And then Tim Collins was my partner in the Boston Managers Group. And he was, uh, he's an amazing guy. So that, that is my lesson. And I, you know, I try to, in a little part, be that way for some of my students and some of my artists, try to help them through my contacts, my connections. So it's all kind of like paying back these people. Absolutely. Now it, it begs the question, you're building this music community in Boston of music executives in Boston. Did you ever think of moving back to New York, LA, Nashville, more of a, you know, quote unquote, on paper traditional music hub? Or did you, did you enjoy being in Boston and sort of, you know, being out of, you know, let's say yeah. LA? You know, um, I didn't, I never thought of moving. I, I love Boston. And, um, you know, Bert Holman, who manages the Allman Brothers, does it from right up the street, you know. And um, Dalton, who manages Father John Misty and Fun and Guster, like right down the street. Like there's, there's big people managing big businesses. We have Logan Airport. Um, there was a time when I was managing a band called the Push Stars. They were on Capitol Records. So I would go out to Los Angeles quite often. Steve Schnur, one of your podcast people, was uh, our Absolutely. And um, so I, I love that. I enjoyed going away and then coming back. And, you know, I remember Rob Light, who's in CAA, maybe the president of CAA. Yep. Like one of the biggest guys in the business. He was in Boston on a show, and we got him to speak at the Boston Managers Group. And he says, he starts out and he sits down and there's probably 40 people around, 50 people around a table. And we used to have them at Newberry Comics, their headquarters. And so we're, the meeting's ready to start and he kind of chuckles and he goes, my God, I don't know how you guys are pulling this off, but this could never go on in Los Angeles or Nashville or New York. Like everybody's just like at each other's throats. I can't believe how uh, this community has come, kind of congealed together. And um, we have special people here in Boston and I, I like it up here, yeah. Let me ask this one question about starting the label. How long did it take for Ellis Paul and Black Wolf Records to start generating revenue and actually become profitable? Um, you know, probably six months. Our first record, um, we went from Newberry Comics down the street and there was a station called WBOS. And the program director, Jim Hurden, I think, we sat down there and uh, I think, you know, he, everybody knew Mike Drees. So I didn't know if Mike was there or set up the meeting, but we said, hi, this is Ellis Paul. I'm Ralph Jackety. This is uh, our first album and we have XYZ on it. And, um, you know, it's independent label and Mike's our partner. And he started playing it and he started playing it. And we sold probably you know, over the course of 10 years, maybe 20 or 30,000 copies and, um, and got airplay. And that was a good launch that got at the attention of rounder records and put Ellis on the radar um, and put me on the radar, but it was like a hometown radio station. That was a commercial station. And we had two other stations at uh, ERS and UMB here in, in Boston that were playing acoustic music and folk music and singer songwriters, the independent music. And they loved Ellis Paul. And we got the support of them right from the get go. So that was, a, that was a big thing. And, you know, Zach, one of the things about Boston is, um, don't tell anybody, but it's a college town. And when these college people hear the music on the ra radio, which Ellis was on the radio a lot back then, they, um, they buy the music, they bought the music, they go to the shows. And when Ellis was starting out, he could do six, 
to seven, eight hundred people fill up a Somerville theater show, uh, which I think is 900 capacity. And that's one guy with a guitar. But we had a lot of support. And then these people, we, we imprint them when they're in college and then they go. They go to Arizona and Seattle and Florida and New Mexico. They go scatter. So that all of a sudden Ellis had a career in all these places because they saw him. Totally. And that's really important. That's really important that once you imprint somebody with your music, they will stay with you. They will stay with you. Absolutely. So a manager has to be present and they have to be in the artist's lives, life. FaceTime is critical, as any manager will tell you. Now we're kind of in this time where it's so much harder to have FaceTime and to be in person. You can't really do it. You're on Zoom. How is that affecting your artist-manager relationships? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's like this. Most of the managers, uh, most of the artists I've ever worked with are road warriors, so they're always on the road. So phone calls are uh, how I communicate with most of them. And, you know, um, one of my artists lives in, uh, outside of Austin, Texas. And I see her three or Rebecca four Lobby. times. Rebecca Lobey. Yeah, Rebecca Lobey. I see her three or four times a year. And, um, and most of the work is email or phone, you know? So, um, but FaceTime's important. So that's why if there's a New York show or a Boston show, I like to go there and, um, and spend some FaceTime. But it's important. This is, uh, you know, it's personal management. It's the personal relationship. These are important relationships. And you got to put energy into the career and to the person because, um, you know, shit happens and life is tough and the business is tough. And I'm here to support the artist and the, the artists are here to support me too sometimes. And, um, you know, when it works, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. So how do you end up at Berkeley? Um, over the course of years, uh, Don Gorder, who's head of the music business management department, would ask me to uh, be on panels and things. And I remember, Zach, one time he asked me to be on something called Rethink Music. And it was at this big convention. And it was like Berkeley was really going all out for this, the, the change of music and the changing models of music. And um, Don asked me to be on a panel. And, um, and it's fine. And then I found out that Mike Mills from REM was on it. And then I found out that um, the, uh, a couple big artists and managers would be on it. And then I found out that the manager of U2 was going to be on it. Paul. Is that McGinnis. guy Siri or? Paul McGinnis is his name. Paul, Paul McGinnis. He, he was the manager when U2 was like high school kids all the way up. He's, he's like the fifth U2 member. And he was, he's like this, one of the biggest legendary managers in the business. And um, he was on the panel. And like, I was, I was getting a little bit nervous because like I was, you know, I was on a different pay scale than anybody on this panel. Mark Cates, who managed MGMT and others, he was on the panel. Like another really, Boston manager. Yeah. Really, really great people. And then, I think a week before Don says, Hey Ralph, can you moderate the panel? And, um, and I go, you know, anything Don does, I would, I would say yes to. So I say, fine. And then I found out that the panel's growing and there was, uh, there was nine people on the panel. So it was, uh, it was really a scary thing, but Don and Berkeley's always invited me in. Um, once a year I would do one or two things at Berkeley. And then, there's a the guy that used to manage the band Boston, Jeff Dornfield, was is a buddy of mine, and he's part of the managers group. And I, you know, I said to him, I said, like, I I love speaking to your class. I love doing this, you know. And he says, well, he he loves the job too, and he's been at Berkeley many years. And he talked about the job, and I go like, and I I was teaching like. I was teaching religious education for 15 years to high school kids. So if you could do that, you I like teaching music business to people, I could do that. So, I, you know, I said, you know, if there's ever an opening, let, let me know. And then um, next thing I know, Don Gorder calls me up and he says, would you speak at my, my class? And it's a class of like 20 people in a circle. And I had to talk about my, my job and my this and that. And I'm, I'm, I'm talking about my career. And I look over at Donnie's listening and taking notes. And I go, oh, my God this could be like a job interview. Like 
he might be testing me out. So um, I doubled up on the Springsteen stories, you know, and, uh, and then years later, like not years later, about a year later, he called me up and says, we have an opening. Would you like to join the faculty? And that was maybe eight years ago. And I've never, never loved a job like I, I, I do teaching. And, you know, a lot of the people I bring in as guest speakers, um, they say, wow, you really love what you do, don't you? And I go, yeah, I do. And um, they always say, most people say, God, I would love to teach. I would love to teach. And um, I, think it's, I think it's one of the most important things to do with my time, my experience, my wisdom. And this is how I serve best. I, I love it. So I'm going in my eighth year. Wow. And Zach, you know, you are, uh, you're an example I use for my students, you know, you were, uh, you were a good student and you were fun and you were smart and you've done great things with yourself. And we've been in touch since you graduated, but now I have things to show my class. I have, you know, the podcast and Nashville briefing and the way you're doing this and the way you're branding yourself is incredible. And then when the coronavirus hit, I reached out to friends in the business to do short videos for my students, just so they know what people in the music business are doing during this time. And I reached out to you first and I got the first video from you and you nailed it. You were really great at it. So, you know, you were my student. Now you're my peer and you're my teacher. And I love that. That's a real special thing that happens. And I get that all the time of my students out in the music world and to see them grow and prosper and, and, and fail. Um, it's, it's, it's great. It's great to see it. Absolutely. Well, let's wrap up here. You, you have brilliantly decided to shoot this call in front of a bookshelf. Always a great move. What are you reading right now? Or, or what, what are some of your favorite books? You know, um, what the, the first thing I taught my kids is a quote, Today, a reader, tomorrow, a leader. And whenever I say that, they, their eyes roll. I've always, always, always loved to read. I, I read, um, I wake up and I have three newspapers, Washington Post, New York Times, and the Boston Globe. So I, if, cover to cover, I read newspapers. I love it. And that was because I was shamed into it by a girlfriend that, you know, was talking about nuclear power or something and Ronald Reagan. And I had no idea what I was doing or saying. And I said some kind of like, like, uh, some garbage about nuclear power. And she goes, you don't even know what you're talking about. And I go, I don't <laughs> read the newspaper, please. So that shamed me into like, the so reading will get you laid. That's the, um, that's the yeah, short story. but I, I'm, I'm completely, I, I love, I love knowledge and wisdom, you know, and it's not just, um, not just music stuff. Like yesterday I listened to your podcast. I listened to a podcast from Wharton uh, with a music, uh, the, the business school at the university of Pennsylvania. And they have a podcast and it's a guy that runs Amway and he's, uh, he's from India and he has a thick accent and he ran a couple businesses now Amway, which is a big company. And he was saying about how he's leading during these times. And he said a quote and I, I just put it on my refrigerator and I uh, took it down and it says the way he leads, he says, lead with love and humility instead of with pride and fear. And as a 60 year old guy, I spent most of my life with pride and fear and um, the love and humility as I'm trying to work that as much into my life as possible. So I, I try to, uh, I try to learn a lot. I recently um, stopped my Comcast cable television. So I'm reading a lot more now. I'm, I'm reading a lot. So I, I read, I do read music business business. Uh, I'm reading a, a history book. I got outside uh, university here. They were giving away books and I have this huge history book. So I'm reading about the civil war and I'm reading about uh, slavery and I'm reading about uh, the birth of America. And it's completely fascinating. Um, I, I just, I, I love to read. I, I love, I love that. And you know something, I rather come into my class at Berkeley and talk about this from the CEO of Amway than um, what happened with Lady Gaga last night, you know? 
because I, th I think um, totally. I think we should know what's going on in our world. What do you try to get across, you know, big picture to your students? Because traditionally, you know, the music business is a business that runs on, you know, no, none of the legends went to music school. It didn't exist. Yeah. Now yeah. it's a luxury to have. Yeah. What do you, and you didn't go to music school. What, what do you think is the, you know, what do you try to get across to your students? You know, in your I, my, I, I have a degree in economics and, um, and I have mentors that used to say to me, if you want to understand a business, if you want to understand anything, watch how the money flows. So at Notre Dame, they were talking about like um, the economics of nonprofits. If you want to bring fresh water to Africa, a, a place in Africa, you got to figure out the money and how to attract money and investors to bring the fresh water in. So that was, I want my students to know about how the money flows because money's just an energy, right? But you have to attract it and you have to create it. You have to create something that attracts money. So I like to talk about that, like the real life business thing and not to scare them, but that it's part of it. And why, why you need the money and why you have to know where it flows. Because as I said in the beginning of this podcast, like m music is for me, the most powerful force on the earth. And you could do amazing things with the power of music. So I try to create the whole bit about the money and the finances and how the money flows and how to attract the money and the power of music and what you're going to do. And ultimately what I want me to do and my students to do is to serve, you know, you got to serve something, you got to serve somebody. And I took, I talk about, you know, I'll, I'll go in and talk about Beyonce and the gross of her last tour. And um, why does she make that much money? Because she serves. Who is she serving? Who is she inspiring? Who is she entertaining? And I make that connection about service and some of the biggest artists and how they've had careers by, uh, by, by these lessons. And these are kind of basic fundamental lessons. Absolutely. Well, Ralph, this has been such a thrill. It's such a pleasure. I mean, I, I always feel like when people ask me, you know, you know, did you like Berkeley? Did you enjoy your time at Berkeley? I always, I try to say two things. The first thing is, I think everyone always talks about, you know, building the story of an artist. If you're a manager, you have to build your artist's story to get them to wherever they want to be. And I feel like I don't think people talk about building the story of an executive or a business leader or whatever that is. And to me, Berkeley is such a foundational story building block in my corner that as I'm building my own things right now, it's very much like, you know, well, I've got this foundation. I spent four years at Berkeley and committed to that and it looks good on paper, right? But even more so than that, it's going through things, you know, struggles and whatever it is and knowing that I've got this, you know, foundation of Berkeley professors and people that I can call up and will help me in a non-judgmental way and in a very non-biased way and they don't have the same skin in my game as, you know, my friend next door in Nashville does, knowing that I can have these people to call and reach out to and ask advice from is huge. And I've called you on many occasions and you've always been there to pick up the phone. So always well, appreciate it. And thank you. But it's understand that it's two ways. I can't believe how much I learned from my students. And, you know, I, I got to be honest with you, that Nashville briefing, I learned so much from that. And then I go into Berkeley and I talk about like uh, something that just happened that I read or I listened to that came from you um, that I could teach my students. And they think I know everything. But it's, it's really amazing. I learned so much from my students when they're students and then past graduation. So it's, it's, um, it's, it's a beautiful kind of flow back and forth. And I'm proud of you. Absolutely. I'm, proud of you, I'm really proud. Well, thank you so much again. Can't wait till we get to get together in person. I hope to be in Boston as soon. I've, I've yet to be in Boston since I graduated two years ago. So um, as soon as I can get back, I'm hoping to come back there and uh, we'll have to grab pavement. Pavement still exists. Yeah, that's, but uh, Zach, I got to be honest with you. I moved to L.A. I, I, you know, I can't stand Boston anymore. Yeah, L.A. That's what's worse. Flashes computer around L.A.'s behind him. Yeah. Hollywood sign right here. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I've got to hop on the phone with Brad Pitt right now. He's probably going to tell me not to name drop, but um, <laughs> yeah, sure, absolutely. Love you, sure. Love you, sure. Sorry. Cash, casual. Right. I love you, man. Thanks.
Back at you. Talk to you soon. All right. See you soon. There it is. Episode 13 in the bag. Oh, man. Ralph, thanks for coming on. That was so fun. You know, I used to look forward to Ralph's class. Every week, he would bring in the best guests. And, you know, you always leave a Ralph Jackman class having learned something. And I'm, I miss that. I miss his classes. So I'm, I'm glad we were able to catch up and hear what he's up to. And, man, I, I, I always love talking with Ralph. So thanks for coming on. Check it out. I'm reading this book right now that I'm really loving. It's called Cowboys and Indies. It's a little bit, it's been out for a minute, but shout out to Michael Chase for the recommendation. This is about the entire history of the recorded music industry. It goes back to the 1800s. I'm freaking out about this book. I mean, I'm, I'm learning so much about the early formation of these companies and, and how they morphed and, and what artists they worked with. Check this book out if you want to, if you want to learn about the really early days of recorded music. Cowboys and Indies. I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. Ch- check it out. Or, or not. I don't know. You do you. If you want a little more content from us, you can subscribe to our newsletter at NashvilleBriefing.com or you can follow us on socials, everything at Nashville Briefing. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you next week. Bye.